I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Huddled around their small fires, clans of prehistoric humans stared into the dancing flames, and there, imagination was kindled. But what they could imagine went far beyond the fireside's soft glow. It extended into the darkness beyond sight, and in their lidless mind's eye, it mingled with their primeval fear of a natural world that often seemed to set its will against them and was populated by fell beasts that hunted them and would do them harm and kill them if they could. In that all-enveloping dark, those imaginings incubated and took terrible shape, growing in size and fierceness, becoming dragons, giants, mammoth wolves, evil spirits, and twisted monstrosities. All of these passed from imagination to legend, things unseen but surely real if not existing now, then once upon a time. But for equally as long as monsters haunted the nightmares of mankind, so too had humanity dreamed of its own saviors, people who could slay the Hydra, bind the giant wolf, decapitate the Gorgon, wrestle the great bull, blind the Cyclops. We created heroes, projected ideals, who displayed the traits we wish we had to combat the monsters that frightened us. Our heroes possessed the strength, the courage, the honor, the wisdom, the sense of justice we frail, imperfect beings could only dream of. And importantly, they held it in their power to tame the wild things and bring order to chaos. Over time, our heroes have become less legendary, less divine, and more consciously created and overtly fictional. But by and large, they've maintained the same set of archetypal traits. Though we don't fear the dark as we used to, our need for heroes to inspire modern people is not less important to our sense of wonder and sometimes hope. For this Fifty Shades of Great matchup, we've chosen two similarly situated, though not identical, fictional heroes 
and hope that by debating their merits and failings, and evaluating how each acquits themselves in relatively analogous situations, we'll be able to arrive at an answer to this question, which one was greater? J.R.R. Tolkien and George R.R. Martin have created two of the great iconic heroes in modern literature, Aragorn and Jon Snow. Within their respective epic fantasy worlds, consciously or unconsciously, each of these characters has undertaken a journey replete with trials and tribulations, love and loss, and each, of course, has monsters to slay as they move towards their ultimate destinies. All right, and joining us today to discuss who is greater, Aragorn or Jon Snow, is an august panel. Uh, and this panel will be anchored by Aziz from the History of Westeros. Say hello, Aziz. Hey, everybody. Aziz from History of Westeros here. Um, I am been a podcaster for, I guess, about six years now, and we focus on mostly the books, but we cover the TV show as well, and it's a... Big deep dive, very detailed. We're really uh, enthusiastic about going full immersive and uh, picking out all the nerdy, fun details and looking at all the stories behind the story. There's a lot of backstory. George R. R. Martin's put a lot of effort into his world, as we'll see with this podcast here tonight. You'll see a, a glimpse into that uh, with just this one character. And we have a lot of fun, so uh, maybe come check us out sometime. Thank you, Aziz. Uh, and also we have Ben Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia. Hello, everybody. My podcast has nothing to do with Tolkien, but I have read the books uh, once a year between the years of 2002 and 2014, so I'm going to be representing Aragorn. And Claude Myron Guzer from The Cannonball. Hey, this is Claude. Uh, I'm from The Cannonball. We're trying to uh, read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. And it's kind of a, a little bit of a bummer because of all the dense, deep, thousand pages that I have to read every month. Uh, neither Tolkien nor Martin are on the list. Uh <laughs> But I, I'm going <laughs> to hang on for dear life. I'm, I'm going to trust you all to, to anchor the conversation, and I'll uh, jump in with a bad pun here and there. Is that sound cool? Well, at least we can count on you for that. <laughs> I always like a good pun. Yes. <laughs> Me too. Is there mm-hmm. such a thing? <laughs> <laughs> They're all good. Next we have uh, Chris Stewart from the History of China. Uh, hi there. Yep, I'm Chris Stewart. I have uh, absolutely nothing to do with either of these subjects in terms of my podcast, uh, which is all right there in the name, helpfully enough. Uh, but I have read the whole book series of uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. I like the show. I once tried to read The Silmarillion and got about a quarter of the way through, but I did see the movies. So that's that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> all right. And rounding us out today, we have Dominic Perry from the History of Egypt podcast. Which, as we can tell, has absolutely everything to do with both of these subjects. <laughs> of course. So obviously I talk about Egypt, but in my spare time I'm an avid fantasy reader, so I have read the entire standard Tolkien, which is The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Uh, I've also tried The Silmarillion, but I gave up. And I've read all of A Song in Ice and Fire, and I've been meaning to get into... George R. Martin's other side works from that universe, but just haven't got around to it yet. 
as an aside, I read the Silmarillion for the first time right after cracking a vertebrae and while heavily sedated on a large number of painkillers. Which is the only way to do it. Did that make it better? <laughs> yes. Great. <laughs> I wonder if that I wonder if that would work on a reread, because when I read the Silmarillion I didn't have any sort of painkillers or any sort of broken anything. <laughs> I have read it sober since. <laughs> <laughs> Which was better. Just... <laughs> Can I just jump in and say I've never read the Silmarillion? Mm. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> it's it's kind of irrelevant, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Tom Daly, and, and I host the American Biography Podcast. Uh, I have read the Silmarillion and the main Tolkien works, and I'm currently up to date on the Song of Ice and Fire as well. So uh, I am at least well rounded. Okay, guys. So, let's get into it. We have two really compelling characters uh, from two dramatically different fantasy stories. Um, But yet, we find that they have a lot of striking similarities and points that we can compare them. Uh, A lot of of crossovers in their character constructions. Now, one that first jumped out to me was that they both seem to be heirs of fallen houses. Uh, and I suppose I should kind of at the outset give a warning that because of the incomplete nature of uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, we are relying partially on the HBO uh, TV show to inform some of who Jon Snow is. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Kit Harrington. Yeah. The entire thing is spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> so just be forewarned. Kings built tombs more splendid than the houses of the living and counted the names of their descent dearer than the names of their sons. Childless lords sat in aged halls musing on heraldry or in high, cold towers asking questions of the stars. And so the kingdom of Gondor sank into ruin, the line of kings failed, the white tree withered and the rule of Gondor was given over to lesser men. King Jaehaerys once told me that madness and greatness are two sides of the same coin. Every time a new Targaryen is born, he said, the gods toss the coin in the air and the world holds its breath to see how it will land. Sir Barristan Selmy. All right, so Aziz, you want to jump in and start with Jon Snow? Sure, yeah, that's a... You know, uh, a common enough fantasy trope, and one we've seen in a lot of places, is famously like Star Wars. The, the someone who doesn't know their heritage and turns out to be very something very significant. And with in Jon Snow's case, it's a huge part of his storyline. You know, it, it gets dragged out for quite a while. As to at first, there's hardly even a mystery at all, and then eventually, you kind of realize there is a mystery, and and it goes from there. And he, of course, turns out to be the the both the son of the North that he thought, but not the son of the father that raised him, and as well as the um, heir to the Targaryen line, the ancient Dragon Kings, and thus he is truly himself the Song of Ice and Fire, you could say. And that, uh, I guess that about sums it up for his hidden heritage. 
Um, as far as Aragorn goes, his the mystery of his heritage lasts for about half a book, or a couple pages, half a chapter maybe. Um, he's uh, he's introduced as sort of this scraggly wanderer from the woods, uh, but then within a little while, it's it's introduced that he's actually uh, a heroic figure with uh, this this grand lineage, but. That said, uh, his lineage, as far as what it is, uh, he is the last heir of the house of Elendur, or Elendil and Isildur. Um, and then beyond that, Elendil was the was a refugee of the Isle of Numenor, where the uh, men who were blessed by the Valar had taken shelter after the, uh, the events of the Silmarillion. And so uh, his, his line stretches way back to the point where he is descended from someone who was the brother of Elrond, which just shows something about the time scales that this book works in. But yeah, one of the main themes of the book is Aragorn, I guess you could say overcoming his um, imposter syndrome and uh, coming into his own as the heir of his house. All right, guys, thanks. Um, so the one thing I know when, when I looked at these two characters about, about this aspect of it is the, there's, I found a lot of parallels between uh, the Targaryens and the Numenorians uh, in terms of kind of having these quasi-magical uh, bloodline traits. Um, you know, I saw that they both came from islands that sunk, um, which I thought was an interesting, uh, an interesting side point. Um, maybe someone wants to talk a little bit about the those traits in the Targaryen blood, and then also you know, someone else can step in and talk about the Numenorians a little bit about what makes each of those, you know, kindreds special. Well. Oh, go go? I, I was just going to say that I, I completely agree with your assessment down to the fact that um, uh, Elendil was not the king of the Numenorians. He was just some sort of one of the noble houses, just like... Um, I've been reading the Wikipedia pages, so uh, Aziz, just like... Um, what's his face? <laughs> oh, that guy. The, of the other Aegon. guys. Aegon. <laughs> yeah, Aegon was not the king of his people but so i think that parallel is is interesting and probably conscious <laughs> um i would also like to point out that the uh the ellendale line aragorn's family the numenorians slightly less inbred than the targaryens <laughs> <laughs> slightly just slightly yeah certainly the the targaryens there's some sort of mystery it's not very well explained and it's supposed to be because one of the themes of a song of ice and fire is that there's no narrator there's no central uh knowledge base from a narrator's point of view either so there's no there there can't be a silmarillion in uh in george r, r. martin's world when, when we get a, a any kind of extended material which there is some uh, for example there's a, a history book it's written from the perspective of a, a maester inside the world so it's it's knowledge that he could have knowledge that other maesters could have other people of knowledge and people who who have tried to record information so that makes some of the magic hard to explain you know because it's not it's supposed to not be explained in its setting it's supposed to be mysterious and that's something i think is 
fun either way. It's fun to have the, the mysteries explained. It's fun to understand the magic, and it's also fun to leave it up to the imagination and everything in between. So in the case of Jon Snow, the, the simplest explanation we, we have is there's some sort of ancient connection between the dragons and the bloodline of the Targaryens. And there were some other families that shared this trait, but all those other families are extinct after the homeland of these people was destroyed in a cataclysm, which well, I guess we'll, we'll talk about that comparison later. But the some sort of ancient magic that connected them to dragons, gave them sort of bond, and of course the physical traits that Jon Snow himself doesn't really have, but is, that was common to the Targaryens include like the light-colored hair, things that you would see that kind of are vaguely elfish, you know, with the, the very bright, colorful eyes, things like that. So, um, yeah, that's about it as far as the magical side of it. On his on his other side, he has. Uh, the, the northern background, which he also has, there's also magic, but it's an entirely different type of magic. There's his dire wolf. He has a connection to an animal, which is this kind of animalistic magic, uh, more of a um, different kind of, much different kind of feel to it. And he has, a, he can be, see through the animal's eyes. And this sort of thing doesn't happen with the dragons. They're not looking through the dragon's eyes and controlling them like that. That that's a completely different thing. The dragons are more like well tamed horses or something that are a lot more dangerous <laughs> you, you really really don't want to make them upset and it's, but it's also connected to this other ancient tradition in this kind of un, unspecified way with regards to um extremely ancient powers regarding uh control over weather and seeing far away and things like that that we that aren't really well understood but things that bran the character bran is dealing with that john is vaguely connected to so i think that about covers it <laughs> yeah i should say something about the magic that you see in terms of aragorn's bloodline um it, magic in general in the the lord of the rings is interestingly very sort of explicable by technology or psychology kinds of things in terms of what was around at Tolkien's time, which is, I, I think, a, a sort of an interesting take on magic. Um, the, the thing you really see in terms of magic is just sort of this force of personality stuff that Aragorn can make friends and influence people and wrest magical objects to his will. And it's really just a strength yeah. of will kind of thing. Yeah. And not so much... Uh, the, the other kinds of magic you see, not from Aragorn, but are just sort of like, people make you feel sad. <laughs> just, yeah. the, the morale of the group drops it's kind of like a, a, a you know a field effect from D D or yeah. something like that it, it, isn't he a lot older than he looks too well yeah, yeah yeah that's yeah that's another aspect of the Numenorians, and we have another section uh you know mystic, mystical bloodlines we might as well bring that into this part here because i think we've already bled in yeah. Um, ah, good pun nice yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and we thought we needed claude just for that <laughs> Most of the elf friends, therefore, departed and dwelt in Numenor, and there they became great and powerful, mariners of renown and lords of many ships. They were fair of face and tall, and the span of their lives was thrice that of men of Middle-earth. The Valyrians themselves claimed they were descended from dragons and were kin to the ones they now controlled. 
the great beauty of the Valerians, with their hair of palest silver or gold and eyes in shades of purple, not found amongst any of the other people of the world, is well known, and often held up as proof that the Valerians were not entirely of the same blood as other men. I'm proving myself useless, but could it, could I intervene sure. or, or interject here for five seconds? So um, I, I feel like uh, as someone who is vaguely familiar with this, I was sort of debasing myself a little bit uh, at the top of the show. But I, I do know – I have read the, the main Tolkien line. Uh, Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, uh, but that was many, many, many ages ago. That was math ago. Um, I am familiar with the HBO series of. Um, I'm losing my mind. I'm two glasses of wine in. Game, Game of Thrones. Uh, Game of Thrones. Thank you. Uh, so I I know that from that perspective, and I have the the Lord of the Rings films mostly in my mind. So, okay, we're coming at it at that. But while y'all were talking, I was sort of mapping a, a couple stuff out, and I, I, I feel like uh, my the only <laughs> role I can take here is kind of as either the chorus or the Inquisition. Uh, I've got questions and observations, and I'm looking for elaboration before we sort of throw down and say, well, Absolutely. who is the better king? But it seems like um, there are a couple of things going on. It, it, it's sort of like... Tolkien, as you guys have described it, seems to be working in sort of deep time. Like there's a long, 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 long ago that that Tolkien is sort of mining and to to get to the kind of mythology that he's that he's using. And Aragorn, it, am I misinterpreting if I'm saying that Aragorn is the result or the the end of that deep oh, yeah. time that's lineage? Deep, that's yeah. So we're at the end of the third age with the events of the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Okay, cool. So he is sort of the end result of that deep time. Now, Jon Snow, as far as I can understand, is the end result of a more immediate political situation. There's the deep time and the far away in um, Game of Thrones, but that's not... That's not the concern at the moment of the storytelling. The storytelling is more concerned with the yeah. the immediate past generation and dealing with the past, what the past generation has done. Am I, am I correct? Yeah. That's what more kind of created Jon Snow that made the character because of the, right. just two people who from opposite, you know, who weren't supposed to be connected politically that that became involved romantically and but you do we there is with regards to the long night there is a pervasive theory that's existed for a long time that we have yet to know because the books are incomplete and the show is also incomplete that there is some connection between the starks which is you know john's mother's half and the ancient evil that's part of the long night some sort of connection sort of vague unknown mystical who knows ba- ba- you know there's some sort of bloodline that might connect them to the to the evil side yeah. of things as well as the as uh, the people who fought against it well we that, don't know yet <laughs> that seemed to be another thing that was sort of recurring was the merging of opposites uh, in john snow it's pretty obvious ice and fire um 
Targaryen and Stark, the South and the North, the blending together, and the way the the show seems to be going is that John and Danny are like. Yeah, anyway. So the the merging of opposites seems to be something that's uh quintessential to Jon Snow, and it seems like in a in a different sense that Aragorn is sort of working the same direction. Um the high that has become low, but the uh in this way that the the aristocracy is made greater by becoming common. Does that make sense? So it's this kind of merging of the highest point, i.e. the aristocracy, and the lowest point, i.e. the um, the sort of common nomadic or semi-nomadic rangers. I, I'd is, say is yes, that but accurate also by going... Not all who right. wander are but, lost. But by, but by going through... <laughs> exactly, test, exactly. Him going through the life of the commoner, the wandering ranger is part of proving that he deserves to be above it, essentially. And the, part of his role is to clarify the right. difference between good and, and evil. And that's ultimately, you know, for, for him, the, that deep and, time thing that you talked about is part of a very, very, very long game that's being played by Sauron, starting at the beginning of the Third Age or even the beginning of the Second Age, depending on how you want to look at it. Sorry, I... I, I'm just trying to, to to sort of clarify to my my yeah. own thinking about this. The <clears throat> the deep time that Tolkien seems to be emphasizing suggests that uh, I have to apologize. I can't turn <laughs> my brain off. <laughs> I'm going into That's what obnoxious <laughs> overthinking mode, but it's yeah. it's okay. It's my default. But it, it seems like that the deep time that Tolkien is suggesting. Or, or, or that you guys are suggesting that, that Tolkien is working in, uh, sort of makes it so that Aragorn both is and is not nobility. On the one hand, he is. But on the other hand, it's been such a long time. There's been such a diminishment of you know aristocracy marrying into aristocracy, marrying into aristocracy, that it, it, it seems, or, or you know having to go to where you need to and the diminishment of the realm itself and the importance of whatever this aristocracy is it seems like at least as i'm interpreting from your reading that part of the point seems to be to take aragorn out of this necessarily strict right down perfect lineage and maybe it's a little more scattered I, am I misreading or, or misinterpreting? I, I don't have the, so the genealogical the, chart. The Aragorn's bloodline has pretty much been hunted for a couple of generations after the fall of Arnor, and uh, that was the northern kingdom that was like the sister kingdom to Gondor. Uh, he's actually from that line. Uh, so after... And that's so after who, yeah, after... Uh, Elendil landed, his two sons got different kingdoms, and yeah, so, just to clarify. Yeah, so, it's a, a ragged house, long bereft of lordship, I think he's referred to as at some point. So he, in some way, is is okay coming back. Like He's the last shot of the Numenorean western man bloodline. I, I, might, I might just add that uh, it's not that they're not aristocratic so much as there's no one else. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's That seems to be... I, I, I think y'all are get 
y'all are articulating what I was sort of uh, intuiting. He's the last shot. He's kind of the ragged end, as opposed to Jon Snow, who is the perfection, if you will. Like there's there's this way in which uh, Aziz, am I misreading that? There's this way that in which at least the the HBO series is setting him up as the the epitome of both houses. He's this house which has these attributes, this house which has these attributes. They're somehow antithetical, and yet they merge in him to create the 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 perfection of both in, in some ways to, to fulfill the prophecy, which I know we'll get into later. But uh, am I misreading that? Um, I think that's what the... The expectation might be laid out to be, but I don't think that's where it's going to go. Um, right, right. That's the, the expectation. Though. He's not really. He doesn't really have the traits of his dragon side, so to speak. Uh, right. So much as he has some of the uh, maybe a few personality traits that are vaguely associated with. Like you could say he has a quick temper, but that's that's not really much to go on. Okay. Uh, so not really. I think that's part of one of the tropes that's being inverted it's that he his parents one of his parents anyway thought that his their bloodline was going to produce this perfect prophetic child but i think the idea is that that's not a real thing that they they're this this person might be important it might happen but it's not this person isn't perfect or ideal at all they're just very quick the right person for the job so to speak <laughs> okay so <laughs> That's, let's not even go into that whole mythology we have a couple folks we haven't heard from yet I mean, uh, Chris or Dominic do you have anything to jump in on in this section one thing that sort of sort of comes into my head is that it's it's going to be at least if we're basing ourselves on what's been written so the George R. R. Martin books and the Tolkien books um Aragorn seems to exist in a much more sort of mythological kind of um, world. Like his per- his personality is almost drawn straight out of someone like King Alfred or those sort of figures. Whereas Jon Snow seems like a much more, at least as I read him, sort of a much more modern i uh, take on the take on the sort of chosen one idea. I think that's kind of. I'm not sure if that's intentional, but it's certainly how I read them in that um, Jon Snow is almost like a stripped-back version of that mythological narrative. And, I mean, obviously it's we have... Obviously Jon Snow is... without the heroism, maybe? Uh, yeah. yeah. He's, he's I got, I agree with you, yeah. He's got the heroism, but he's not existing in this sort of lofty, superhuman realm yeah, that I... Aragorn does seem to. Aragorn has far fewer flaws as than Jon Snow would, as far as we see them. I would uh, ha- I would sadly agree with that in general. <laughs> um, although, well, if you had the blood yeah, of elves know, in you, you'd they, be they make perfect a lot too. Of, <laughs> they, they make a lot of You're statements saying I don't? about how his uh, his ancestral <laughs> blood runs nearly pure through some miraculous set of circumstances, but you do you do occasionally see him doubting himself and you do get occasional moments where Aragorn is a human being uh, but I, I generally agree for the most part the arc you get with him is of a sort of King Alfred figure you know even when he's burning cakes in the swamp it's still you know they still taste good 
Swamp cake. So, so if I could just jump in with a quick question, just just to clarify this for my own sake here, in terms of why Aragorn went and you know sort of turned his back on his heritage and went off and became the, the ranger of the north and all that. I, I was under the impression that that, was, that had something to do with the guilt about his bloodline and about uh, the you know his, his right. ancestor having succumbed to the power of the ring. A- am I overplaying so, in that? The movie or verse? Am I overthinking Ooh. that? Or? It struck me very strongly when I reread The Lord of the Rings after watching the films that in the films they they sort of they pace out Aragorn's journey from ranger slash, you know, hidden hero to returning king over the three the three films. You have that scene in Return of the King where, um, what's his name, Hugo Weaving, uh, shows up to give Aragorn his sword. And he almost rejects it, and then he takes it up, and, you know, it's the Return of the King kicking off. But in the books, that happens in a sort of throwaway yeah. line in the Fellowship of the Ring. He basically... Aragorn comes into Fellowship of the Ring as a ranger and then very quickly reveals himself as the king and the whole journey yeah. he is acting do, as that You do see him doubt himself. That's why I opened this out by saying he's sort of... His arc is overcoming his own imposter syndrome. Uh, you see him doubting himself. You see him sort of... You, you don't get the, oh god, Isildur failed thing that you get in the movies... Uh, but you do get a, a sort of like, is it time? Is this is is this the right thing to do? Uh, you know, that kind of thing, and him sort of mm. gradually figuring out how to take on his leadership role while still being himself, I guess. <laughs> so, so is this sort of coming down one more time? I'm I feel like I'm the interpreter. <laughs> or the Inquisitor. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so, so is it sort of coming down to to <laughs> call me Cardinal Fang? Uh, is it coming down to the myth versus the more human attributes? Is is that sort of how this is falling out in terms of heirs to fallen houses? That there's uh, Aragorn who seems to embody the mythological aspects a little more easily that he's he's he fits a little bit more easily into that container whereas Jon Snow some of it seems to be an expectation and some of it seems to be maybe sort of kind of he can, can I go a little bit beyond the text uh yeah um yeah Tolkien himself yeah, was, I think, just to set the background there, for those who don't know, super Catholic and super monarchist. And um, Aragorn is his defense okay. of the British monarchy. Like, there's no way around that. It's, you know, this is the divine right of kings, humanly personified <laughs> in, or his, in his story, mythologically personified. So, Well, that's a, that's what I was wondering, because in a lot of... In a lot of modernism, uh, there's this weird idealization of the aristocratic as somehow more connected to, quote unquote, the people than the middle classes or the bourgeoisie, which are often read as agitators, (laughs) anarchic agitators who don't know what they want, who only follow the dollar. 
And that's sort of the, the realm that, that. that Tolkien is coming out of. And and, and Martin is... Um, he strikes me as someone closer to us who's more skeptical of those kinds the, of the one, the one thing, stances. The one thing I would add there is just that I don't know that that's entirely a modernist perspective. Um, no, it, it's it's the modernist Victorian <laughs> well, but, and if obsession you, and if with medieval. Back <laughs> over the uh, Enlightenment <laughs> and the, the romance. If you go back to the Middle Ages, um, yeah, there's a lot of that going around. Must we? Like the um, <laughs> the monarchs spent a lot of time balancing themselves against the aristocracy by playing up populism, uh, to for lack of a better so. Uh, okay. Tolkien was a professor of Anglo-Saxon uh, language and was very up on the uh, the history, you know, history as it was understood at his time. And, and so there's there's a lot of stuff along those lines that gets brought into his work. For what that's worth, no, it, it it's worth a lot. It's that's yeah. that's sort of the class issue that I'm going with, or, or, or that I'm kind of kind of getting at. If only Daniel were here to uh, Daniel, my co-podcaster, were here to sort of socialism us into it. Uh, but the that seems to be sort of what the the dividing line is in this lineage issue is how do we read the the, the lineage as um, as the perfection of aristocracy or as the last stab of it. And it, it sort of seems to me kind of... Um, par- <laughs> this is why no one talks to me at the bar. Uh, but it seems kind of paradoxical that that both of them are, are, are trying to navigate or negotiate these, these binaries. Um, Tolkien, on the one hand, wants to have this Aragorn who's the epitome of the king and the sort of mythological king who is also of the people. Uh, Jon Snow seems to be the epitome of the bloodline, but what Aziz has been suggesting is that the the narratorial style of the books themselves work against that that whole expectation of the prophecy itself. So it, it, it seems to me that in in this instance. Maybe not even in this instance. Maybe we'll have to wait the, the, the full 17 <laughs> hours of this podcast to sort of suss it out. But it seems to be that the fundamental difference is which view are you going to take? The the sort of aristocratic point of view or this weirdly complicated, I don't know, late 20th, early well, 21st? I, maybe, maybe we could get a better... Maybe we can get more perspective on it if we move along to the next section, <laughs> where we start we start discussing okay, their youths and their upbringing and, and some of the actions that they take, um, you know, during their lives and and kind of progress our understanding of them at the same time. Gilrayan took leave of Elrond and returned to her own people in Eriador, and lived alone, and she seldom saw her son again. But on a time, when Aragorn had returned to the north, he came to her, and she said to him before he went, This is our last meeting, Estel, my son. I am aged by care. I cannot face the darkness of our time that gathers upon Middle-earth. Aragorn tried to comfort her, but she answered only with this linnet. I gave hope to the Dunedan. I have kept no hope for myself.
He could hear her still at times. Promise me, she had cried in a room that smelled of blood and roses. Promise me, Ned. The fever had taken her strength and her voice had been as faint as a whisper. But when he gave her his word, the fear had gone out of his sister's eyes. Ned remembered the way she had smiled then, how tightly her fingers had clutched his as she gave up her hold on life, the rose petals spilling from her palm, dead and black. All right, so I think we should look next at their youths. Uh, And both were youths in some kind of danger or another. Um, Now, Aziz, you went first in the last section. So, Ben, why don't you start with Aragorn's youth? Um, It has been a little while since I read The Silmarillion and the Appendix 3 of The Lord of the Rings. But um, basically, Aragorn... um, it was understood that uh, his his bloodline still held power by the agents of darkness, and so his uh, his family always had to balance their duty to protect the people of the north with the fact that they were actively being hunted by the very people who would threaten the north. So, um, gradually, uh, many members of his family were killed, including his father. Um, ultimately, he had to. Uh, find refuge uh, with the elves in Rivendell. Well, you don't see much in the books, and it's sort of mentioned in throwaway lines in the appendices and in the Silmarillion, um, is just that there are sort of little very insecure villages of rangers throughout the north. Um, And that is where he began his life, and then they would ultimately end up getting overrun, and people would get killed. So his... uh, From... A fairly young age, he, he sheltered in Rivendell and then grew up there uh, before moving out into the world. Um, and, you know, Rivendell is this uh, fortress mystically protected by the power of Elrond and the elves and all that stuff. So, uh, Aziz, you want to give us uh, the counterpoint with Jon Snow? Well, sure, his danger is more in the sense that he's not really aware of it, which is kind of an interesting uh, side note there. But mostly uh, his, since he has heritage from the previous dynasty, the dynasty that was eliminated uh, almost entirely, but not entirely eliminated, but because of how awful the uh, last king had been, and, and in particular how much the new king hated all uh, the previous king and all his descendants uh, or his all his relatives rather so we have the new baratheon king who hates the targaryen kings who are now dethroned and john snow poor little baby is of the targaryen heritage and thus if his heritage were known the targaryen the baratheon king would want him dead the twist of course being that the that john snow is related to the Baratheon King's best friend, and that, of course, is where a lot of the drama comes from. But as far as the straight-up heritage, he has to keep that hidden. And a, a, a good way to uh, ensure that his bloodline never causes any sort of uh, problems for the, the, the dynasty... Uh, the Baratheon dynasty at the time anyway was to send him to this place called the wall and they have an order of a military military order called the night's watch whose 
job is to protect the realm from threats that come in the uh, from the distant north. And part of joining this uh, order, the Nice Watch it's called again, is that you forsake all lands and titles and claims and all, and all that stuff. So John has forsaken all his lands and claims and titles that he didn't even know he had. And, of course, that's a major part of the story as well. We can open it up to the panel now. Obviously, both have imminent dangers to their lives, uh, but both kind of found themselves in pretty cushy surroundings, ultimately. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know enough about the youth of Aragorn to comment, but perhaps one of the things that's more... that's kind of interesting about where, why Jon Snow is different is how the household he grows up in itself is to some degree divided against him in that uh, Eddard cares for him, knowing full well what is his situation is, but never tells him. Meanwhile, Catelyn Stark never knows that situation and she grows up hating Jon Snow. Mm. It seems like a, it seems like an interesting, just maybe it's a cosmetic difference as between Aragorn, who to the best of my knowledge was grew up loved, but somewhat sort of like an orphan. Whereas Jon Snow grew up as a adopted orphan, but who had this major challenge in his very, in his own internal family. He was more safe because of the lie, but less, uh, you know, less opportunity to be to be a part yeah. of the family and to be loved. Mm. That's well, I, I guess I guess the other big the other mm. big difference is that. Jon Snow was in a very different sort of danger. His was a like the danger of a secret, but um, the agents of Sauron, as I understand it, were actively hunting yes. the bloodline mm. of Numenor. <laughs> I guess Someone that's to more clarify yeah. that. I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I guess, in the sense that as as long as that secret of who Jon Snow's parentage was, and the only person who knew was Eddard, Jon Snow was pretty safe, whereas Aragorn yeah. was to some degree being hunted actively. Chris, do you have a point? <laughs> and to, uh, I was yes. watching Chris get yeah, more, I, more I do. Uh, and, yeah. I was like, wait, come on, hit me, hit me, hit me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's it's kind of just a more of an of an overarching thing that I think uh, relates to the, the the themes of the book overall, but also these two characters in particular. Um, which is the, I mean, to get a little meta for a moment, it's the fact that. You know, the Song of Ice and Fire was written in large part as kind of the 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 counterpoint or the the antithesis of the kind mm-hmm. of story arc and character building that True. the Lord of the Rings builds as the, the sort of the classic hero trope. It, it's sort of done as as the the uh, the opposite version of that, and you can see that in a lot of ways in in the differences that a lot of you guys were mentioning between um, Aragorn and and John. So, for instance, you know, in terms of of the world overall. In Westeros and, and uh, uh, the Song of Ice and Fire, you know, magic starts out as you know nothing more than a parlor right. trick and is rising. Right. Whereas in the Third Age of Middle Earth, the power of the world is waning. The elves are leaving, and magic is leaving the world forever. So that, that's the that's the uh, the duality there. As uh, you guys were saying, you know, John forsakes everything, uh, not knowing what he's forsaking, as you said. But he gives it all up, and only later does he even realize what he kind of walked away from. Whereas Aragorn knows exactly where he came from. 
he knows exactly the the power and the right of his own lineage um and he the the story is where very early on he does sort of walk away from it but it's it's a process of hmm. coming in to accept yeah. and and embody oh. that power rather than than walk away from it um, <laughs> Aragorn's walking away is more tactical. So, it's like he just those, doesn't those want to disrupt Gondor when there's no that. reason to. <laughs> you know, it's, the time isn't right, you know, kind of thing. Mm. Jon Snow may find himself in a similar position. We don't know; mm. he ha- hasn't learned all of his heritage yet, so we don't know how he's going to react to it. But certainly, it'll be dramatic. Um, <laughs> I think another thing uh, with Aragorn that uh, you know. Partly why he ends up leaving Rivendell and and doesn't immediately go and and claim his own his own heritage is he has this the side story that he's dealing with and that's trying to prove himself to Elrond to ultimately be worthy of of Arwen's hand and the culmination mm. of being able to finally marry Arwen is is the kingship but first he has to go through you know all his different trials and tribulations you know after he leaves um whereas you see john is shuttled off to the wall almost to live passively but finds yeah yeah, he's told to go he's sent there go there and die essentially is is you know the grand hope you know not in a mean way but you know ultimately don't cause trouble for the new baratheons but well, that actually that solution actually just presented itself. He he volu- he wanted to go. It was never suggested to him or put on him. It just kind of yeah. worked out. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. He idolized his uncle Benjamin and really wanted to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, true. U- ultimately, ultimately, though, adventure and and fate still seek him out. So your suicidal desire yeah. happened to coincide with the, the <laughs> desire for everyone else to want you to die. It's sort of like. <laughs> Have have you ever read the Sorrows of Young Werther? Um, Convenient. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm gonna go no. high lit here, but uh, Sorrows of Young Werther is this novel by Goethe where this young man bemoans his fate for 150 pages and ultimately kills himself. And uh, a buddy of mine put it this way that uh, he he does what you would have wanted to do to oh. him. Um, Okay, so John still acquiesces <laughs> to. Uh... It's like the most Russian novel story ever. <laughs> but okay, so it's sort of like John Snow sort of kind of ended up where everyone wanted him to be, risking his life in some way, shape, or form, or, or, or dying. And Aragorn is well, sort of negotiating. Yeah, he's got that, his twelve that, flavors that, kind of that he has to perform in order to win the damsel's hand. Yeah, that's you know? a really good. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's you know okay. I think that okay. even if Elrond hadn't been like you know hey you got to go do this to win my daughter's hand, you know the the bloodline of Numenor had spent the last you know age thousands of years um, without any kind of credit or support running around in the wilderness killing orcs and stuff just to make sure that as far as i can tell just to make sure that the hobbits were able to farm happily um <laughs> so uh, there's a, a certain amount of um <laughs> yeah <you know? laughs> hook me up man there you go yeah but you know the long bottom leaf that long is bottom leaf the, the 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 sort of pr it's thing but it's the hobbit cabbages that 
you know, no, that's the that's the real. Well, I uh, mean, money there's crop. there's the mushrooms. The mushrooms are, are really <laughs> yeah. good. Farmer Farmer Cotton's mushrooms. Look at the the economy, way. people. The economy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> mushrooms and long bottom leaf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the, the mushrooms yeah i'm sure that's for the nutritional value we've talked a lot about the dunedain and the night's watch and maybe ben and aziz would want to talk a little bit about those organizations or those the purposes of those things a little more and then we can get an idea of what aragorn and john are kind of uh, taking in from their participation with those groups how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Dunedain, secret guardians of Eridor after the fall of the North Kingdom. A secret and wandering people, their deeds and labors, were seldom sung or recorded. The Bree folk called them the Rangers and knew nothing of their origin. They were taller and darker than the men of Bree and were believed to have strange powers of sight and hearing and to understand the language of beasts and birds. They roamed at will southwards and eastwards, even as far as the Misty Mountains, but they were now few and rarely seen. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honour to the night's watch for this night 
and all the nights to come. All right. The Night's Watch was supposedly founded some maybe 8,000 years ago as, as part of the whole history is uncertain aspect of A Song of Ice and Fire. That 8,000-year figure is very much a, a guess by in-world historians. And they were formed after the last appearance of this or or during the last appearance of this ancient evil that menaces the land of Westeros. And in the TV show, they're called the White Walkers. In the books, they're called the Others. So I may call them one or the other uh, back and forth. And so the, the Night's Watch formed because of the emergence of these Others. And they are kind of like, it's easy to see them as just ice demons. That's the simplest way to put it. And But they can also raise the dead and have the dead march as as an army of their own. So that's obviously very threatening. And so they built this huge ice wall after defeating the others and this endless darkness in some way that's not entirely understood. So I suppose that's a big part of the story that's yet to be revealed. And ever since then, this order of night, the night's watch has watched for the return of this ancient evil. And and over time, because it's been so long, mankind has pretty much forgotten about this ancient evil and largely think of it as just some ancient story. And in the meantime, there are some regular human people that are still living north of the Wall, and they are kind of the substitute threat in the meantime. And they're not much of a threat, but they are something. They send raiding parties there, but they're basically just a... Uh, a, a un, you know, decentralized sort of barbaric civilization that socialists, uh, yeah, <laughs> that that attacks the uh, that it, you know that raids and and steals things from Westeros, uh, partly because of their extreme weather conditions. Anyway, the uh, over time that it, it's become just that they all they do is guard the realm against these savages and that as it's seen and so it's it's no longer really considered an honorable calling where it, when it used to be an extremely honorable calling and so we see the degradation of that uh, as a social concept and now it it's needed again it's for real and everyone's kind of forgotten about it and no one's taking it seriously so I suppose that's um, where we're at right now. So bef- before I talk about the Dunedain, I just want to draw an interesting parallel there. Uh, one of the big themes of uh, Lord of the Rings is the failure of the Watch on uh, the walls of Mordor and the, the failure of the vigilance yeah. of men ultimately over the thousands of years. So that- that's an interesting, uh, nice parallel there with, uh, uh, with yeah, uh, Song of Ice and Fire. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the Dunedain, um, so the Dunedain are the short version is that they are just what's left of the Kingdom of Arnor in terms of its people. Um, the the Kingdom of Arnor is the northern kingdom. Uh, all these refugees came from Numenor. Again, they split in two. Uh, half of them went north. The Kingdom of Arnor was as glorious as the Kingdom of Gondor, but ultimately uh, split in three due to the uh, machinations of um, some agents of Sauron. Notably one of the or the, the leader of the nine that you see in the movies. The witch king. Um, the, the nine. 
the Witch King, yes, uh, who then, um, when people figured out that he was messing with things, uh, took his ball and went and founded his own kingdom in the mountains next door, uh, called, uh, I'm forgetting, <laughs> but Angmar, it was really Angmar. bad. Ang- Angmar, thank you, yes. Um, and then with the three, despite him going and founding Angmar, uh, the three kingdoms were still at each other's throats, more or less, and weakened, and then, you know, he came in and rolled over the kingdoms, but uh, they got out a message, and at the last minute, uh, the uh, the elves showed up along with troops from Gondor, and uh, the, the Witch King seemed unstoppable, but then... Um, Elendil showed up and he tucked his tail between his legs and then uh, the Witch King tucked his tail between the legs and ran off into the hills shouting whoop 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 <laughs> um and the <laughs> the, the kingdom <laughs> yeah the kingdom of Angmar uh the, the uh, Angmar was en- ended up being destroyed but not like it was still in the mountains so no one lived there uh goblins ended up moving in so whoever was left of Arnor just sort of stayed there and ultimately couldn't repopulate anything because there weren't enough of them left and there kept being raids by trolls, orcs, goblins, wolves, etc. <laughs> um, so they, the Dunedain are basically a sort of semi-military cast of rangers living out in the woods uh, running around killing trolls and orcs, etc. Um, like it's their job. And apparently the only people who benefit are the uh, hobbits who don't even know that that's happening. <laughs> so so can I just say, b- before further conversation, I just really got to bump in a real important thing here. Aziz, I'm, I'm really disappointed you did not mention the existential threat that the Night Watch guards against, other than the others or the... But uh, Grumpkins and Snarks. I mean, you, you didn't even bring that up. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the danger of Grumpkins and Snarks cannot be exactly. overstated, really. They, they're as dangerous as they sound. <laughs> you know, if you want to get an idea, I don't have to describe them. They're just, you think of a snark. I mean, you know that's, ooh, you're going to all have nightmares tonight. <laughs> they were a weapon in uh, Half-Life. <laughs> snarks, you know? <laughs> Sounds like a fearsome weapon. They only did ten percent damage. Uh, one thing that that kind of jumps out to me when you look at the Night's Watch uh, and the Dunedain is the Dunedain are very much like a, this this like guerrilla force in this running war with you know the agents of darkness. They don't really seem to have yeah. fortifications or walled towns. I imagine it's like they're almost wildings themselves uh in the term yeah. that that, the, that you'd recognize in game of thrones um whereas the night's watches seems this very highly structured um well fortified obviously with its like 800 foot ice wall um relatively comfortable military posting yeah I, the dunedain were very again this is tolkien being very much a, a man of his times as someone who's up on his military history, when I go back and read Lord of the Rings, you see this sort of um, admiration of light infantry and guerrilla tactics that that's, you know, it maybe isn't what, you know, we think of with the knights and shining armor and everything, but those elves, man, 
Those are the ones that are smart. They're sitting up in the trees shooting arrows at people, and the Duna Diner doing well, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, let's, let's keep in mind where, where Tolkien's um, coming out of, though. He's coming out of the trenches of World War One, where the whole notion of chivalry and knightly exactly. combat has just been shattered beyond any kind of, of uh, you know, coming back. He's, he's thoroughly, thoroughly disappointed with that whole idea. So I think that comes out. Yes, I agree totally. The, the men of Gondor are shown as like sort of idiots uh, with their, you know, wanting to run out there with their shields and big swords and everything. It's the, the, the woodland elves who are, you know, they're the ones who are really doing it. The, the you know, Elrond and, and all of them calling down rivers and, you know, <laughs> you never see them. You just die. <laughs> okay, so Chrissy, that is a fascinating idea. You're you're introducing the way that um, Tolkien mm. has been, and, and, and I agree with you. I think you're right that yes. in a lot of ways he's the product of World War One, and the you, some of the the best criticism I've seen of Tolkien, like literary criticism, has read him in terms of uh, response to the World Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So if this is, I guess this is my question, if if the World War put the lie to the issue of chivalry, then how is he still aristocratic? Because he's British. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Yeah, that's, I, I, I agree with that, absolutely. It's because Britain... Managed to emerge okay. from the the ashes of the First World War with its monarchy still intact and somehow struggling to justify it. And, but he's also, uh, in his characterization of the elves and their waning power and also this last alliance of men and elves, it's, it is kind of emblematic of the the triple entente powers um, and their, their okay, alliance okay. against, you know, the, the German, the Axis, the central powers rather. I'm, speaking about the wrong axis and how even if they win after that the alliance ultimately is broken their power is gone and it's all over regardless of whether they win or lose but a new power rises which is democracy and the power of men you know the power of people you know that that's what comes out it's finding a kind of nobility that exists beyond bloodlines and beyond i mean there is bloodlines but something that's beyond you know, mystical, magical, divine right. So in this weird way, you're suggesting that Tolkien is using the the sort of mythological aristocratic apparatus, mythology as this absolute um, hierarchical transcendental container of truth to move on from that to... Uh, a more human realm where things are sort of messy and indeterminate. And yet Martin is in the midst of that messy indeterminate realm. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I I mean, the characterizations of men you see in Lord of the Rings are sort of gray. I mean, you see the the people in Lake town who, you know, are led by this guy who's just kind of a corrupt middle-class uh, merchant, and you know, you see the the people in Bree who, you know, act out of fear, uh, and the people of Gondor who, despite all their 
pretension and all their wisdom uh, ultimately succumb to mm-hmm. madness and fear. Uh, and yet the the process of the story is a way to make things safe for them to grow and learn. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. I think Tolkien, ultimately, he's coming out of this this entirely chaotic time where all of your ancient institutions have been broken apart and shattered forever. And he's telling a story of trying to bring order mm-hmm. from that chaos, trying to rebuild the world and try to make something back out of it. But I think Martin comes from it in our, you know, modern sensibilities. And, and a lot of the points that he's making is no matter what order you think is there, chaos still exists within it. And there's a lot of randomness still in the system. Yeah. Yeah. George is more of a product of the Vietnam war and, uh, those kind of concepts that, that, Mm-hmm. You know, we we discussed and learned and thought about in, in that time, and he was he was you know, he's in his late sixties now, so he would have been would have been right in his wheelhouse uh, when he was in his I suppose early thirties or so, and or late twenty whatever. I'm not doing the math. Right <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but it for to to us it's basically historical context, but for him it was his life, just like it, for to- Tolkien. Well, Tolkien it was a lot. It was literally hands on for him, but. Um, yeah, and, and it's a, the point being that they're both very much writing stories that are both not just products of what was going on in the world at their times, but, but what affected them directly. For example, this whole return of this ancient evil in the a Song of Ice and Fire, with it is coming this huge looming threat of, a, of an epic winter. And this is widely seen as an allegory for for climate change being that there's this threat that could potentially destroy everyone. Meanwhile, people are fighting over politics. Yeah. Right. That's, well, uh, <laughs> yeah. That, okay. So this is, I'm sorry, please. No, that's it. That was, that was, the, I, I would just want to jump in and, uh, <laughs> if we're name dropping high literature and stuff, <laughs> um, the thing that I always think of, uh, when I'm, I'm talking about this particular theme from Lord of the Rings is the movie Le Grand Delusion with the, uh, the aristocratic, guy who sacrifices himself so that the working class guy can escape and found, you know go on and found a new world anyway sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Dominic I, I thought I heard you jumping in um, I definitely want to return to that sort of climate change thing because one of the things I was thinking about when we were talking about what Tolkien was touching on with his themes I think one of the things that we, we haven't mentioned yet but we definitely should is how obsessed Tolkien was with the natural world versus oh, yes. yeah. the Industrial Revolution. So I think we should come back to yes. that. All right, because it seems that from what we're mapping out, um, it, it almost seems like we're 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 rehashing this argument of modernism versus postmodernism. Oh yeah, yeah. and, and I, I I'm not flinging those around this is my dissertation hang on everybody sit down grab a drink and it's going to be two Done. two hours it's empty. Uh, no but one of the things that and he finishes the can. <laughs> chris just chugged a can right, of something i don't know what uh but it's just a sip but but um Part of what what it seems to me, all right. There, there's a, a literary critic. Uh, I think it was Charles Molesworth. It might be Altieri. Uh, but there's this argument that post that that modern literature recognized all of these symptoms 
And the response was to sort of pull back and try to ironize it all and build a shield around it and sort of comment from afar and try to develop a solution from looking at it objectively. And then postmodern literature uh, recognizes that even that move is uh, curtailed in some way, shape, or form, that you can't ever abstract yourself entirely. You're always of the moment so that you can only look at it subjectively and try to pick out what's going around. Uh, the other thing that's going on, it, it strikes me, is that both uh, Martin and Tolkien are dealing with these binaries. They're dealing with these like dualities that they're trying to negotiate. And both of them merge the dualities in different ways, but Tolkien seems to merge them in this modernist way uh, in which you can yeah, kind you've of got step an ambulance like, right like it's parked and... next to you. <laughs> Should we maybe, maybe redo yes, that? Yes, it literally is parked right next to me. There's a tremendous traffic jam occurring on the, the Hudson Parkway. Uh, hmm. It's it's as bad of one <laughs> as I've ever seen, and wow. yeah, cars are going backwards. Well, that's good. Down yeah, that's, that's, that's going to gonna help. That's going to help maneuver around. That's, which which definitely brings, an improvement. Which brings me back to my point about postmodernism <laughs> that you can't separate yourself from the immersive moment. You, you can't. Segue. Thank you. It's almost like well, I'm moving that in now. Um, but you can't. You, you, you can't pull back from the, the moment of being that you have to interact and react in the moment that you're working with. And the attempt to try to step outside that is always already going to be curtailed within that moment. I'm sorry to get Heideggerian. But the, the, that seems to be the, the crux here. Are we going to accept this sort of hero who can step outside it and kind of mythologically objectify and accept the mythology, or are we going to um, privilege this sort of multi-perspective view, but a multi-perspective view which also has a view towards the totalizing force of ecology? There's no stepping outside of, of ecology, uh, hmm. And and I I think Dominic, that's an interesting point that maybe we shouldn't kick down the road. How does Tolkien treat of ecology? How does Martin treat of ecology? Maybe perhaps that's a place where the two of them are working in conjunction. Do they have something similar to say? There are points of contact, but do like throughout both of the pieces, as as, as I've been gathering from what y'all have been saying. But is ecology the point of contact where where they're sort of like, okay, this is where we both come It's down. interesting. Uh, I'll just start answering that point about ecology. They, they sort of have a they have a flip-flopped version of it because I, I tend to think of uh, postmodernism as more wishy-washy and ethereal. Um, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> where, so Tolkien's approach to um, ecology is very like Emerson, mystical, transcendental, like, um, he has characters whose sole role is defending trees as, you know, inherently valuable. <laughs> so, so is Tom Bombadil the Lorax? Or yeah, is I mean, that basically. The... Tom Bombadil is master, okay? <laughs> yeah. 
I love Tom Bombadil. Uh, What's his he, deal anyway? Well, He's like God uh, or something. You, anyway. you could you people argue for days consecutively yeah. over who Tom Bombadil is, so we're not going to get that squared away. Um, but I, I would say annoying that. as hell. I love Tom. I, think Bombadil. I love Tom Bombadil. <laughs> but I would say you look at so so um, Tolkien's definitely coming at the beginning of of this. He, so he founds this this type of fantasy movement essentially, and this type of fantasy writing, and he mm-hmm. definitely is coming from much earlier into the industrial revolution. Obviously, not at the beginning of it, though he was sort of probably born towards the beginning of it. Um, and he's talking about process, like his his chapter in the Hobbit. Not that it has anything to do with Aragorn, but the yeah. scouring of the Shire is 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 mm. as on point a criticism of industrialization and the process of industrialization and everything that's wrong with it as as including like, a straight like up condemnation of capitalism um, while we're at it. Yeah. Just boom, right there. Where you have Martin bookending it, he he is the biggest fantasy writer today, writing at the, the other end of the the fantasy movement that uh, Tolkien founded. And he is, if we take his his long night allegory of being climate change, he is talking about like the ultimate fruition of something that Tolkien was criticizing sixty years yeah, ago. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would add a sort of question on that though because um the ending of the lord of the rings seems to imply to some degree that a a temporary victory has been achieved against industrialization you know isengard and mordor who are the big sort of criminals in that sense have been defeated the scouring of the shire is presumably going to be reversed so where Tolkien leaves yeah. his story, and to the best to the to the best of my knowledge, he never wrote anything about what happens afterwards, except for yeah, the very basic that, ends of it, their lives, know, uh, which comes in the appendices. Mordor becomes fruitful eventually, and so does the sh- the Shire within the scouring of within the end of the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam uses elf magic to bring the Shire back faster than it would have otherwise, and yeah, right. So there's very much a sort of a positive ending in that sense, and that industrialization gets halted and a naturalist, happy kind of movement takes over Middle-earth and everything becomes yes. greenery, or at least more more green. What what Martin seems to do, and I'd, I'd never actually occurred to me that the um, cycles in his world, like the long night and things, were a metaphor for climate change, I guess because they seem to happen as a natural part of that world that winters are can last for years and summers can last for years anyway whereas Tolkien sort of ends it on a note of active active rejection and fixing it Martin's point of view if the long night is a metaphor is that it's almost inevitable that it can't be stopped the only way the only thing that can be stopped are the sort of agents of it which are like the the white walkers but I don't quite get the I don't quite I guess almost I don't quite understand the climate change implications of George R. R. Martin's ecological cycle because it does seem to be an almost well, natural I, I would say there's world. always a danger in reading too much into into these type of allegories because the authors are also at the same time trying to write an entertaining story 
So I don't think the sole purpose mm. of either of the writings was to condemn, you know, capitalism or industri- industrial revolution or climate change. It's just something that, you know, they can work in there, maybe. Or maybe they don't think anything about it. Maybe they'd be scratching their heads. Well, I, I would film. say that T- Tolkien hated allegory. Uh, That's I, an I interesting. But he, I, he never denied the ecolo- ecological yeah. aspects. He always denied the world war aspects. Um, so yeah, yeah. But I'm going to default to the Jameson's yeah. political <laughs> unconscious. So <laughs> no, but like what, whatever, whatever it, it's doing, it is expressing an ideology, uh, and uh, it, it may not work out allegorically it may not work out on a a direct one-to-one basis but i think that ecological concern is there um you've been so y'all been suggesting that the 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 tolkienian view is this kind of heal the earth transcendental ecology the the martin view seems to be at least as I'm reading it through the the HBO production, uh, a post-human system, if that makes any sense, that this is something that exists beyond the human, that the human can identify and intervene in to a degree but cannot master or control, whereas Tolkien seems to be uh, suggesting that you can master or control it. And I I agree with you there, and I just to kind of uh, piggyback on there, yeah, I think Tolkien comes at it from from a very Christian uh, worldview, which is that, you know, ultimately there is the the, the lands of the the West, you know, which is an allegory pretty direct for heaven of course which is the ultimately the most important thing you know we all want to go on the ships to the west uh whereas i'd say i'd say martin's interpretation of climate and and everything is that uh like you just said you know you can there are things you can do about it but ultimately there's there's a lot of it that is uh, uh just not affectable uh random chaotic uh you can't really control it. You can maybe delay it. You can fight against it. It's that uh, I forget who said it, but you know uh, the 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 old saying where you know even though if if you think you can't succeed, you must you know rage rage against the dying of the light. <laughs> oh yeah, fight against uh, the Rodney Dangerfield, Dylan Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's the one. That's the one. Yes, Dylan Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> and Dying of the Light is a George R. R. Martin book too. Is it? Oh, I didn't even know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one of his other non unrelated to Westeros, but family, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> then that's that's sort of coming down to this this dichotomy, I suppose the the modern versus the postmodern, the modern stepping outside to modify, contain, control, master to a degree, uh, the postmodern suggesting fluidity and inability to master and perhaps to identify but also be subject to that that it almost seems as if martin is suggesting a post-human system i i i'll come back to it It, it's one that ecology is one that we can we can look at we can tell the weather but we can't control the weather 
Or, is or, Martin or a climate change master denier? The I mean, does anyone know? How's that? Mm. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's we can affect it, but we can't master it. I want to step yeah. in here and get us back on track. <laughs> because while that was fascinating, what, were you guys? <laughs> What are we talking about again? Uh, uh, apparently, I, I do. I do want to get to. No, no, no. I I do want to get to. Th- these are all lining up. Okay, maybe not for any of y'all, but for me, this is all lining up. Like th- this is sort of coming down to. I mean, we're talking about these broad categorical things, mm-hmm. but this is sort of coming down to what kind of hero we want or need in the moment. It, how do we gauge? Mm-hmm. Aragorn as the epitome of of king or leader or what we would like or what we would desire or what we think would like to I guess legislate and guide or Jon Snow as the other end of that well, how do we interpret what a leader is I mean it seems like uh, part of what Martin is doing is questioning how we even interpret these tropes in the 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 fantasy realm, but I I do want to come to the prophecy because that gets exactly. back to I think that's exactly to what we were talking about exactly what we should look at because they're both fulfillments of something that the authors are trying to tell us. So I think looking at the prophecies that that drive them and that they're moving towards as characters might might help answer that. All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither, deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. There will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword. And that sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes. And he who clasps it shall be Azor Ahai come again. And the darkness shall flee before him. So, Aziz, maybe you'd want to tell us a bit about the prince that was promised, uh, slash Azor High prophecy? Sure, yeah. The the prince that was promised, slash Azor High prophecies, are related, but not the same. It's a, sort of a point of debate within the community, a fun thing to think about, whether they're because they come from different historical traditions, but they seem to point to a similar thing. And Jon Snow's father, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, was apparently aware of this prophecy, and he maybe thought he had to fulfill it somehow, or thought at first maybe thought he was the prince that was promised, and then later realized that he wasn't, and that it was going to be his child. And yeah, well, this is part of the way George R. R. Martin likes to pre- play with these expectations and and prophecies and and the, the trope of 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 that whole uh, that whole uh, genre of uh, or that whole part of, of fantasy and fiction in general. Um, so 
I guess you could say the basic idea is there's supposed to be uh, an ancient uh, a, a warrior that's going to rise and uh, during the darkness, this this when this long night returns and and throws the world into darkness again, and he's going to he or she is going to uh, have this sword called Lightbringer, and Lightbringer is. Can, could be a metaphor. Daenerys's dragons can be seen as a form of Lightbringer. Uh, it could be... Uh, this, there's a lot of ways it could be interpreted, so I, I won't get into the minutia of that. But the general idea is that there's a hero that will come during the time of need and they'll wield some, uh, there's some sort of flaming weapon or some sort of thing that's got flame associated with it, which you could see why that would be dragons or something like that. And that will be instrumental in fighting back the the darkness and but the one of the major inversions is that the, the story of the the azor ahai the azor ahai version of this prophecy is pretty dark it involves this hero having to kill his wife to make this important weapon in order to fight the darkness and that's like strikes you as well that's that's not heroic at all what's going on here <laughs> but it's also like well if he's having to if it's necessary to save the world i i don't know it's a kind of um it's a philosophical conundrum i suppose and uh i guess that's that's about it for the prophecy so so john snow of course is not aware of that he fulfills this at all at this point so we don't know how it's going to play out we can kind of expect there'll be some sort of inversion of this trope given how many other uh tropes have been inverted and how many uh things he liked to play with but then again um, it's overstated that George R. R. Martin breaks all the tropes. He does, certainly doesn't do that. He uses a lot of them. If, if he broke every trope, well, that would be just as predictable as breaking none of them. So, yeah, you, you have to have... You have to be able to do both to kind of keep people on their toes. And uh, So that's where we're at. We don't know where it's going to lead, but um, it seems to be uh, sufficiently mysterious to give a lot of different interpretations. All right, Ben? Okay, so the, the prophecy element of Aragorn is one of the weaker elements of the character and the stories from a writing perspective. Um, I, I have to say the, um, the, the bit that David read, uh, all that is gold does not glitter, blah, 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 blah. That's actually said some of Bilbo's best. Stuff. Yeah, but it's Bilbo who was alive <laughs> at the time. And it wasn't the prophet who was a hobbit who smoked weed and, uh, farm stuff. I mean, uh, when you get deeper into the books, there is a prophecy handed down from on high that is dropped in at the last minute uh, in The Return of the King to explain the Paths of the Dead thing, um, which is otherwise cool, but that prophecy being dropped in in the you know beginning of the third book is a bit deus ex machina. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think uh, Tolkien kind of shoved that in to build up the heroic character sort of in a post hoc kind of way. Um, uh, you know, I should be advocating more for Aragorn, I suppose, but that's sort of my, uh, my feeling that the prophecy thing was always a little bit, um, that said again, he was being hunted all his life by Sauron for a reason, but it's more, it's less of this, um, mystical magical thing which tolkien seems to to a certain extent reject um and it's more of a there's a power in that bloodline and this isn't magic it's 
science for some reason um, that we don't understand. That Sauron understands that there's power in this bloodline, that so long as the Numenorians are around, it's a threat, and so he has to take care of them first. Okay, so are you suggesting that Tolkien is downplaying the the prophecy angle? I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I definitely think it's not as strong as it could be. Um, and, and part of this gets to the way Tolkien wrote. He was notoriously disorganized. Mm. Um, <laughs> there was uh, the idea that he had things planned out from the beginning is absurd. <laughs> um, simply absurd uh his his son christopher should really get co-writer credit for just keeping his dad on track (laughs) um the entire time um so i I yeah uh, i think um i wish george had one of those i I think (laughs) the idea that there needed to be a prophecy that prophecy-ish things are important to the character of the hero is something that tolkien recognized but he also had sort of a um, a very British relationship with magic, I guess, in the sense that he, you know, he's very practical. There's rational explanations for everything. These are the people that invented empiricism in the modern sense. Um, the and um, you know, there's. The, the elves completely reject the idea of elf magic within the books. You know, they're like, I don't know what you mean by magic. We just do things. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so the idea that there would be a mystical, magical prophecy is sort of... I don't know, it's not something he gets to until the third book, which just seems kind of shoehorned in to me. Um, that said, he hmm. does it. Malbec the seer does prophesize that there's going to be this guy and uh, Elendil also has a prophecy about some future king that's going to need this, you know, army of the dead, but it's just sort of a deus ex machina to get Aragorn access to this mystical fear army that no one else is allowed to use. So in in what way is it a, a, a deus ex machina? This is so my question. Not... Does the prophecy... This is how... No, no, Sorry, no, I... I know I'm no, annoying. No. But is is it that the prophecy itself encourages him to enact the prophecy, or is it that he inevitably fulfills you the don't, prophecy? Is, you is don't it... hear about the prophecy until the third okay. book, when he is standing in front of a mountain full of ghosts, that everyone else who's entered has died, and he turns to his companion, who's saying, everyone else who's entered this has died, and he says, yeah, but there's this prophecy. Okay, so it... But you know, but you know what? You know what, Ben? I, I think I would slightly disagree, not that I agree that Bilbo wrote right. that little ditty, all that his gold does not glitter, but I think what he's doing is he's just putting into words something that already exists that's perhaps understood but maybe maybe wordless up to that point. Like the whole idea that Aragorn is going to need to return to, to take the throne of Gondor up to ultimately save the world – I mean, is there from very early? Yeah, on I think in the first that that's book. true. 
And we and we and we get that we get that that stanza from Bilbo. I think in the yes, fellowship definitely. at Rivendell, and you know, there, there it is acknowledged that he is the rightful heir, and he should be the one who's ruling Gondor. But he's not doing it yet because the time isn't right, and the time will be right at some undefined point in the future. But you don't get like yeah. a, you know, you don't get Malbec the Blind Seer yeah, showing think... up and going. <gasps> <laughs> No. Okay. No. But he's putting his destiny right. into words, and I mean, des- the line between destiny and prophecy Fair. is okay. negligible. Okay, because that's that's the other thing that um, I. Sorry, I hate to draw in another uh, canon, <laughs> but that's that's one of the issues in in Harry Potter is is this fulfilling a prophecy or is this a self fulfilling prophecy? Is this something that has been preordained or does it just match up the facts for the moment? It it, it seems that that Martin, at, at least as you'll have described it to me, is working in this. Hey, maybe this works the facts for the moment or maybe we're kind of sort of cherry picking or maybe we're whatever it is the perspectivization that the narration suggests is kind of like maybe you can see it maybe you can't see it maybe it's fulfilling something maybe we're forcing it to fulfill something um but then as as you're talking about tolkien it it seems to suggest well, this is one of the tropes of the genre. Got to get it in there. <laughs> I, I, I got that feeling from reading The Return of the King, which is otherwise my favorite book. But, um, yeah, I definitely... It, that said, what Tom said, I think, was a, a key insight that... And it ties into what I'd been saying about magic before. They just knew that this was going to happen. They didn't need some seer to show up and tell them. They just... It was just understood that, you know, Aragorn had strength in his bloodline and was fated to reforge the Sword of Destiny and save the princess. <laughs> Anybody else have anything to add? Chris? And, and I, yeah, I'll add a little bit, if I may. Um, so, like I said, I read part of the Silmarillion, and I know that was done after well, it, the fact, and it's kind of ex post sorry. facto. <laughs> uh, no, but but they he does eventually kind of explain himself out in terms of in terms of and by this by he I mean Tolkien uh, in terms of what he means by the, the nature of, of prophecy and fate, which is that it's you know it's it's everything in all of uh, Middle Earth is is part of the the song of creation that nothing can can be separate from no matter how they try you know that at the beginning of creation uh yes eru aluvatar if i'm getting that right um <laughs> the ayu Th- thank you yeah that's I-, I had something in my throat so i just didn't say it correctly uh, <laughs> you start starts the song of creation and some of his uh, angels essentially try to break away from that harmony and no matter what they do the song changes to inevitably bring them back into the fold and that's that's the story in a nutshell of even though you have giant powerful entities like Morgoth and later his you know lackey Sauron trying to break away and make their own thing ultimately there is this destiny right. that is fated to happen from the dawn of time 
So at least from the Tolkienistic perspective, there is this ultimate fate and prophecy. And I know we, we get the God's eye, the literal God's eye perspective in Tolkien. And uh, as, as Aziz said very early on in the show, uh, from in, in Song of Ice and Pyre, Song of Ice and Fire, we're very much down at the the everyman's level. The the only history you get is like some guy who knows how to read a book, and that's that's the summation of the history that you get. Um, but uh, part part of Martin's thing is is the uh, in very much in the opposite direction, the sort of mutable, changeable. And as uh, I, for, I forget who said it, but you know the sort of the way that prophecy can come to fulfill itself uh, by sort of like everyone knowing that there is a prophecy, therefore we must fulfill it somehow. We'll we'll fit this square peg into that round hole, however we have to. I would just add awesome that um, as a good Catholic, uh, Tolkien felt the need to um, try and square the inevitability of destiny with free will, and that's another one of the big themes of the book. That yes, this is all sort of faded, but if we don't get up and start walking, then you know things can still go wrong. Things can still be worse. You know, right? Well, yeah. if I could, if I could dumb it down for a second, <laughs> um, you know, they have these <laughs> these big fates and these destinies, and they're prophesized, but they also have like really cool swords. <laughs> Well, okay, the, I got, and can maybe we talk about the really oh man, cool oh yeah. Well, I, 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 I got to say you, now that you're speaking my on, language. On the sheet that we all shared with each other, this is subtitled "Blades of Destiny," which I thought sounded like the the yes. best <laughs> mediocre NES game ever. Because you go to Blockbuster to rent it, and it turns out it's like an ice skating game. <laughs> Isn't it a Will yes, Ferrell yes. movie? Or not? Maybe not Will Ferrell. But I <laughs> the Blades of Glory, Glory maybe. The the what's his name? Joe, yeah, yeah, that's a Will Ferrell movie. Yeah. yeah. All right, but um, yeah, let's John talk Hader. about cool yeah. swords. Very bright was that sword when it was made whole again. The light of the sun shone redly in it, and the light of the moon shone cold, and its edge was hard and keen. And Aragorn gave it a new name, and called it Andoril, Flame of the West. The pommel was a hunk of pale stone weighted with lead to balance the long blade. It had been carved into the likeness of a snarling wolf's head, with chips of garnet set into the eyes. When John turned it sideways, he could see the ripples in the dark steel where the metal had been folded back on itself again and again. This is a Valyrian steel, my lord, he said wonderingly. Ben, uh, okay. Ben, why don't you get us started? Okay. Sweet. So, um, Narsil cool was just the sword of Is- Isildur. Uh, who was one of the sons of Elendil, who was the guy who came over from Numenor. Uh, and they had this um, last grand battle with the Alliance of the Elves and what remained of the men of Gondor. And they attacked Sauron in Mordor, and Sauron blew through them like a hot knife through butter, uh, killed 
uh, Gilgalad and Elendil, and Elendil's son was, his sword was broken, um, and Sauron was, you know, reaching for him to, you know, torture him or capture him or whatever. And at the last moment, using just the, whatever chunk of the sword was left on the blade, uh, Isildur managed to cut, uh, Sauron's hand and cut the ring off of his hand, or, you know, cut the fingers off with the ring on it. And, uh, that blew up Sauron, essentially. Uh, it blew him into a spirit, uh, without form. Very Voldemort. Um, and, uh, that's basically... So, they collected the shards, and the shards started to go north with, uh, Isildur to become an heir of his house, uh, an heirloom of his house. But then Isildur and his whole entourage was wiped out, and one guy escaped holding the shards and made it to... Um, you know, Elrond and Rivendell, and it was you know prophesied eh, prophecy uh, that you know when the time was right, Narsil would be reforged, and so they when they were setting out, uh, Narsil was reforged as uh, Andril by the elves, who were the last people left who would know how to do so. And disease. You have kind of like a twofer here. I'm not really sure how you want to approach it, but go for it. Well, yeah, the we talked about Lightbringer as part of the Azor High prophecy a bit, and that may or may not refer to a literal sword. And if that is meant to be something wielded by Jon Snow, which I tend to doubt, well, if it, but if, if it, but if I'm wrong, he he doesn't have this weapon yet, so we don't know uh, much about it. But there is a, a strong candidate that I can mention, and that's called Dawn, which was a sword forged from a meteorite some many thousands of years before. And there's there's historical precedent for that real world, given um, meteor iron uh, can be heated by the atmosphere, whereas ancient man couldn't get anything to that temperature. So uh, that's kind of fun. But he, he currently he wields a, a pretty fancy sword already that's called Longclaw, and it's it's made of what's called Valyrian steel, which is a fantasy steel, basically. Uh, it's very light, and it's lighter than regular steel, more durable than regular steel, but also sharper and never loses its edge. Sort of like a magical combination of steel and obsidian. It's got the sharpness and lightness of obsidian with the flexibility and, and hardness and durability of steel. And he acquired this sword just by doing a great job <laughs> in his, basically. So there's nothing too fancy about it or, or, or epic at all. He just is the uh, air, kind of the up-and-coming uh, kid in the Night's Watch that the Lord Commander takes a, a shine to because he's... Um, a good kid, and he comes from this noble bloodline, and so he kind of had his eye on him as a possible uh, commander down the line, and he saved his life. So he's, hey, kid, have my sword. So, <laughs> uh, so there's, no, it, it's, it's, I guess it's part of that trope inversion bit that we keep coming back to with his, his, he has this amazing sword, but it's, he didn't do anything uh, terribly amazing. It was, you know, saving someone's life is pretty special, but it's nothing, it's not what you expect from a fantasy epic is this big, um, certainly nothing compared to cutting the, the, the one ring off of 
Sauron. I mean, that's just way more epic. <laughs> so uh, I guess if we're if we're judging things on epicness, um, yeah, the the Aragorn sword is a little cooler in that way. But um, we have yet to see the full extent of Jon Snow's sword art. Maybe he'll be wielding two swords <laughs> at once: a flaming sword and a a regular, even a cool, but well, it's not regular, but a cool other sword. All at the same time, and yeah, that would be a great video game. <laughs> I would, I would say, I think it's interesting that you know, Anduril, uh, Aragorn's sword really has no innate value or properties to it, other than it actually scares the bejesus out of like Sauron, who has like PTSD about having his hand cut off. Well, it whereas, gets... whereas Lightbringer actually, I'm sorry, whereas uh, Longclaw. And Valyrian steel actually has some some properties that actually aid in killing at least the the whites and the the the, the Walking Dead troopers that the White Walkers employ. I thought that was Obsidian that did that. It's yeah. both. That both. also does it. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. I would just say, um, it's it, yeah. You know, Andril and Narsil, they're all Numenorean technology, so they are particularly sharp and good at cutting and strong and all that stuff. Um, but the other thing is that that gets back to the nature of magic within Tolkien. It's not shooting fire out of your hands or anything like that. It's manipulating the emotions and psychology of the people around you and, you know, sort of... I I do think that Andril uh, glows when orcs are around, um, but I could be wrong. It's elf steel? Yeah, it's elf steel. So so it is elven. But again, that's a technology. Yeah. But um, it, it is a, that's again technological, really, rather than um, some sort of mystical power. Any sufficient technology is indistinguishable mm-hmm. from magic. Exactly, Tolkien's very big <laughs> on that. Um, Anybody else have want to talk about the yeah, swords? Yeah, I, I, I'd only noticed a a, a uh, just now a particular uh, link that I'd never really noticed before, which was the the idea of the reforging. Of, of the swords and it's not um long claw incidentally um it's it's ice into widow's whale and uh god let's see oath keeper but valerian steel in general um as well which is in westeros since the doom of valeria nobody is able to create valerian steel anymore only the most masterful smiths can even reforge Valyrian steel, and there's you know like a half dozen of them scattered across the world or whatever. Um, so it's it's something that is this finite resource that that cannot be replicated or created anew. And what what was being said about and Anduril or uh, yeah Narsil before that um, was that the elves were able to reforge it, but that was that was kind of using up the last of their power. They were the only ones who could have even possibly done it. So that's just sort of an interesting link mm-hmm. that I, I only just now noticed, that the, both of these sort of types of swords, whether we regard them as magical or technological or whatever else, it, it is um, this, this interesting link that they're both done with sort of the last dying power of this ancient force uh, that, that could never be done again. Yeah. It's like John McClane that's, with two bullets. Cool, yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And does it? If, if I can uh, get a clarification, I'm not clear exactly on the on the Lord of the Rings side of this. Did they did something that can't be done again? Was there also any kind of sacrifice involved? No, they, they, they knew how to do it. They're just they're on the way out. Skill, they're yeah. Down. They just okay. they just have the skill, and they're, to do and they're leaving. Yeah. They're going to the west. They're okay. they're not going to come back ever again. Yeah, right. No one's. I mean, theoretically, to between. <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring and uh, Return of the King, someone else could have come to Rivendell and been like, ah, my, the carburetor on my sword is broken. Uh, can you guys, can you guys change the oil or whatever? But that is exactly how swords work. Chris, you reminded me of another. As far as I know. <laughs> Chris, you reminded me of a, of a, of a minor parallel there uh, that exists as well, which you, you mentioned that the elves going west there and in it's 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 not a direct parallel, but in, in Westeros, of course, to the west, mm. there nobody knows what's there. There's this giant ocean, and uh, no one's ever come back from trying to explore it really far. Those who have come back found nothing, and those who went farther never came back. So that might be uh, some sort of uh, parallel, yeah. to, or at least a nod to Tolkien, yeah. I would think. But uh, I guess not very <laughs> sword-related. Few swords in the ocean. They, they don't come up very often. <laughs> Horses, apparently. But I'm, yeah. Does anybody else have any points? I, Dominic, do swords do anything in New Zealand? I don't know, but we basically invented Middle Earth swords, right? So we're just <laughs> a good boy. We're all, we're all carrying them. We're all carrying them around. They're tax deductible and everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it it seems like we even with the swords we're back to this how do we interpret? You know, there's there's this question of interpretation. Do we do we interpret this as um fundamentally prophesied or 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 prophesized or or do we interpret this as happenstance that can be shoehorned into the the interpretation of the thing? I'm generally a believer with both of these things and actually with most fantasy literature that the prophecies are more things that um, people attach to their own actions than Mm. anything else, especially in the HBO version of Game of Thrones, because the only ones who really talk the prophecy are either the maesters, I believe, or people (laughs) like Melisandre, who are basically religious fanatics. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. at least, right. and we repeat, repeatedly see her get it wrong. Yeah, at yeah. least on a, at least in the HBO version, it's very much pushed as a, as an interpretive thing rather than a mechanism. Yeah, she is an epic screw up. She really mm. is. <laughs> so hot though. So hot though. <laughs> Aziz, doesn't Martin have a maester say, uh, maybe in the Feast of Crows, uh, a prophecy is a sword without a hilt. I yes. think that that really applies um, to a lot of I, what we're kind of getting into it. Absolutely, yeah. And Melisandre has a, a, a response to that. She says, "But a sword, but yes, it's it's a sword without a hilt. But still, a sword is a useful thing to have." And it's like, yeah. Well, there you go, so. Claude. <laughs> she just finds her finds her way to argue anything there. <laughs> so she also has written and defended a dissertation. She writes hers in blood and, and look. Look into the fire. Just keep looking. Just How'd that look. work out for her? Yeah. Until you see something, <laughs> keep looking. I keep I looking. actually told that to one of my committee members. So we've been talking over all these aspects of, of these. We'll call them heroes. 
You can't have heroes without enemies. So I think it's time we talk about the ultimate evil that each of them are facing. Sounds good. Sauron versus Cersei. <laughs> <laughs> Sauron was become now a sorcerer of dreadful power, master of shadows and of phantoms, foul in wisdom, cruel in strength, misshaping what he touched, twisting what he ruled, lord of werewolves. His dominion was torment. That is the time for fear, my little lord. When the White Walkers moved through the woods, in that darkness, the White Walkers came for the first time. They swept through cities and kingdoms, riding their dead horses, hunting with their packs of pale spiders big as hounds. Ben, would you like to get us started? Sure, yeah. Um, Ultimately, the source of all evil in Middle-earth is Morgoth. But he's been banished to the space between realms uh, in his weird five-dimensional flying frame from Superman. Uh, he, he's been banished um, <laughs> long since uh, at the end of the Silmarillion. Sauron was a, you could call them uh, a, a, a demigod or something like that. He was one of the servants of the Valar who was sub- seduced by Morgoth. Uh, They're like angels or something. And like that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, whatever. Yeah, I mean, with Tolkien's super Catholic uh, interpretation of the universe. Yeah. So, so sort of like an angel servant figure. Uh, he was seduced by Morgoth and was just sort of a minor flunky, um, but was one of the ones that got <laughs> away uh, in the complete massacre that followed the intervention of the Valar at the end of the Silmarillion. They can make pretty things. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he met, he pretended that he'd been reformed um, and managed to ingratiate himself to uh, first the elves and then the Numenorians, and then um, managed to uh, orchestrate the downfall of both. Um and then uh, eventually was able to reveal himself as a, or was forced to reveal himself as evil, got himself uh, unhanded by Isildur. Um, but has sort of, I mean, by definition, this guy's playing a super long game um, with, with everything that's going on. And at, by the time of the Lord of the Rings, he's sort of, he's getting very close to getting everything that he wants. He's, um, he's knocked down pretty much all the races of the time that seemed like they were a threat. The elves are on their way out. The Numen- the uh, the descendants of Numenor have been ground down to almost nothing. The dwarf the dwarf kingdoms have been systematically destroyed, um, and all that's left is Gondor and some scraps of you know hobbits up in the north and whatever. And he's bringing the entire weight of the world to bear on getting rid of Gondor. Okay, Z's. Okay, well, the the others apparently emerged some 8,000 years ago, and it's not clear exactly uh, their origin, but it is su- suggested and 
by the TV show that the children of the forest created them. And that is certainly backed up in the books indirectly. It's not uh, confirmed, but I would guess that it's, it's going to be confirmed or at least suggested even more so than it already has. And that implies that because the children of the forest, who were the ancient first inhabitants of Westeros, you can think of them sort of like uh, the Native Americans in a lot of ways, um, in that they were pushed aside by a, a more populous, more uh, advanced race. And so this may have been, but the, but the children of the forest have these unspecified magical powers that relate to nature somewhat. And so the idea is that they took captive humans and created the others from them. And this is just a theory, but that, that this got out of hand. They didn't know exactly what they were creating. They didn't intend for it to be this bad. Or another theory is that, you know, like like any real civilization, there an entire race wasn't united in their in a belief on something. So you had children, some children of the forest who wanted to who wanted peace, some children of the forest who were um, hardliners who wanted all at war, and there were some who were in between. And so you could maybe the hardliners were the ones that came up with this super weapon, and, and it got out of hand, or it's exactly what they intended. Who knows? But the bottom line is that these ice demons, as we've called them earlier, is a good way to describe them, either come with or come because of the extreme cold. And the cold is so bad that it is deadly. And with them, of course, comes these creatures that they've risen from the dead. And there's also legends of, of ice spiders and things like that that come with them as well. And since they haven't fully been dealt with in books or show yet there it's unclear of what can defeat them or what if what if any their motivations are whether it's simple if they were created to be a weapon then they might simply be just bent on destruction if they have any sort of sentience and there may, may be something else going on with them it's not clear in the tv show they're given a, a boss the night king but in the books that is the, the night king is more of a mythological figure and there's almost no evidence at all that he's that there's some boss other in the books. We'll see. Uh, George, in, in fact, has cautioned people against thinking that it will go that way. But it might. It very well might. He, he does, also doesn't want to just give it away. So we'll, we'll have to see. But it seems more maybe more of a society or uh, just a, a fantasy race that is semi-mindless rather than something with uh, a leader and a specific uh, agenda. Though they definitely operate with intelligence. They use things. They use fear and... Uh, cleverness and certainly a lot of things that indicate that they're not uh, um, just beasts or automatons or anything like that. All right. So I would just, I would start with the fact that you look at a Tolkien, everything in Tolkien's world is diminishing. So when you look at Sauron, right? Like, so back in the Cimmerillion, he got beat up by a girl and a dog. <laughs> <laughs> when Luthien and Huon just just kicked the snot out of him, uh, he did beat Finrod in a dance off, essentially. Um, but then then got dragged by the king of Numenor by the scruff of his neck uh, into captivity. And it's only he's only super powerful in the end of the Third Age because everything else is diminished. I look at the. You've already convinced me from that 
description that Jon Snow is facing the the more major. I, I would absolutely. Say, I, I would just say though that a lot of the diminishment has happened due to the um, baleful influence of Sarah. Yeah, but Jon Snow is just a dude with a cool sword, right? And the, these like ice demons are marching in in mass at him. Uh, I, I, I will interject there. He's not quite just a dude with a cool sword. He is a dude with a cool sword who was also brought back to life by the fire god, uh, which has happened, I think, all of <laughs> twice. You know, in, in the series. Good point. Well, it happened to one guy five times. Yeah, so that's a whole bit of a curiosity too. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it seems like we've got the the identifiable big bad versus the unidentifiable mob. Yeah. Or or the singular versus the system. Or if you want to if you want to look at that that climate change analogy, it's they're like nature almost. They're an, yeah. an inevitability. Mm-hmm. Kind of just like a yeah. glacier moving at you at a really high speed. Yeah. Although, and then maybe the humanity pats itself on the back for beating it afterwards, and really it was in a, you know yeah. beyond their large. I, I would just say that Sauron <laughs> spent you know a lot of his time trying to convince everybody that his victory was inevitable, mm. and maybe just you know we don't know what's going to happen with the uh, the last books, whatever. Yeah, and this this is kind of the thing that's that sort of uh, plays out with these two evil forces is that Sauron's kind of a chump. I mean, really, he's he's twice defeated. <laughs> he's like the flunky <laughs> of the actual bad guy. Uh, you know, yeah. he, his whole power is based in a piece of jewelry. I mean, and you know, um, <laughs> and and ever. He what got his is, fingers what, cut off by a half a sword. Know? Come on. And that's the thing, <laughs> as you guys mentioned in the Lord of the Rings universe, every time you use your power, even to create, even to build, you lose it. I mean, that's why Sauron got defeated by a girl and a... Uh, sorry, not Sauron. Morgoth got defeated by a girl and a dog at the end. It's because he'd used up all of his power to make his empire, and he had nothing left. You know, he's just... He started off as this god and then ends up as just this, you know, dude in cool armor kind of a thing. Um, and, and we really don't know the ultimate causality or, or where the power comes from from the others. But I really was intrigued, and, and I, I'm pretty sure, and Aziz, correct me if I'm wrong here, that the, the idea of the children creating the others from the dragon glass into the heart thing, that's, that's a show-only thing, right? It's been a while since I read it. Yeah. As far as the method of making them, yeah, that I don't think the dragon glass into the heart. I doubt that's the the method that we'll see yeah. in the book. I, I imagine it'll be a little more mysterious. And uh, but yeah, I think they just decided yeah. to simplify. It. I'm guessing they just simplified that. But yeah, you're you're right. We don't know yet. So <laughs> that's that's, to, that's that's sort of where we're where we're sure. running into a wall in terms of this whole thing. Is we know everything about Middle Earth and we don't know everything about uh, Westeros yet. Yeah. But you know the the idea of them having become or or become this rogue weapon basically um and as as you guys said before uh was it ben i i sorry my I'm bad with my memory but um you know magic being a sword with no hilt you can utilize it but you can never know who it's going to cut um and that's they're kind of the ultimate embodiment of that um 
the 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 clearest parallel that I that I draw really in terms of the the rogue weapon that we never know who it's going to um, to affect. I mean, a shout out to Hawaii is nuclear power. You know that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and and of course, yeah. There's and then the George R. R. Martin himself likes to refer to the dragons as the as an allegory mm. for nuclear weapons or the equivalent of nuclear weapons because they're just so much beyond anything else in the setting as far as military power there's just nothing that can stand up to them there's you know the occasional lucky ballista shot might hit something but you got to you're you're kind of on a wing and a prayer but it's so yeah go what, ahead what I is that's all I had. what is more threatening i guess is the the identifiable singular thing, that thing that you can say this is definitively the thing to which I am opposed, or this nameless, unidentifiable mob, the, this thing which seems to be a system or a force that's overwhelming that perhaps works with the natural order or whatever order or whatever system. It, it's sort of like, um, okay. I, 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 <laughs> I apologize beforehand <laughs> and I, I don't like Slavoj Žižek, everybody's favorite, um, Slovenian, uh, Lacanian Marxist philosopher. Uh, I, I, I don't like him, but one of the things he points out is the way that with a totalitarian government, you are assured of the enemy. And there's this way in which the you can identify that to which you are opposed. You're opposed against this totalitarian dictator. On the other hand, in this kind of um, loosey-goosey capitalist system where truth is relative, you are not entirely, entirely certain to which you are opposed. So it becomes more difficult to make a definitive mm -hmm. political stance. Now, I, I'm not necessarily endorsing that. Um, there's a lot about that that I find problematic. I would prefer not to live in a totalitarian government. Having said that, though, uh, that does seem to speak to some of what we're, we're talking about here. We can identify Sauron. He's the giant eye. We can identify Sauron with a, a particular um, emblem. And if we can identify the emblem and if we can find it, then we can oppose it more fully, coalesce around it, and hopefully destroy it. With the White Walkers, it becomes more difficult because what exactly is it that we are opposing? We're opposing a thing that may not even be there. We're opposing a thing that we have to convince others is actually occurring. We're opposing a thing that cannot be concretely known or understood. And in some ways, that's much more difficult. I would just say that there's elements of that within... I, I, my response ultimately is, if I'm summing it up in, in one sentence, it depends what threat you face in your times. Um, but yeah, the the my broader response is there's there's elements of that within Tolkien that Sauron has this ability to 
make use of whatever pre-existing conflicts are in a given mm-hmm. space already make to twist people to not see him as the main threat to to conv- to sway people his opinion and there's there's this element of just why don't you see that this is the bad guy that you you confront sort of again and again within the lord of the rings that there's what's wrong with you we're trying to slay the dragon there's a big eye over there why are you allying with the big glowing eye uh which i find you know i always found a comfortingly distant fantasy uh in my youth and has become more and more real these days but um Mm. yeah Uh, so again it comes back what what is the threat you face in your times I I largely agree with Claude. I mean, I think it's much more comforting to have a defined enemy and be able to make plans against one than than have this this unknown. Because I mean, ultimately, you see that's exactly what happens. And they're, they're fighting they're fighting outside the Black Gates. That you know the the or Aragorn's forces are losing, but because you know the ring gets destroyed, his will is destroyed and. There, everyone, all the orcs and all the trolls just run. That's it. Gotta go. But you don't know what to do against against the whites. You have I have I have a stone knife. I have like what thirty Valyrian steel swords and all of Westeros. But but ultimately, once they're all together and on the field, then you can identify what the big glowing eye is, right? I mean, when the White Walkers actually show up. Even if you weren't able to convince anyone about them existing beforehand, once they're storming the gates, then there's a threat. Even if, you know, and that's sort of the thing with Sauron. People didn't believe he was a threat until orc armies started rolling in, right? And then it's I have a, a comment on that. Yeah, it seemed kind of, it seemed like a forgotten long ago thing. Yeah. Right? Something on that, something on that occurred to me is that it does, I think this again goes back to what you were saying about it depends the enemy you face in your time because in the tv series of game of thrones you know as the as the last season finished spoilers obviously um we just saw uh the Lannis- the lannisters actively confronted with the reality of the threat that this that these uh whites or zombies did exist that they were a real thing and yet despite that despite believing it, they still underestimated the scale of the threat enough to carry on with their little machinations. Which, to me... Right, they, yeah, they view it cynically as, a, as an opportunity to let their opponents be weakened instead of an existential threat to them all. Yes, yeah. whereas by the time Aragorn is um, active, the those who are those who are facing off with the threat, who are going to make an active... who are actually going to engage in the battle... All of them are aware of the threat that Sauron faces, and there's no division within the ranks except from these little manipulators like Wormtongue, who try to co-opt the war effort, well, but get rejected. Well, I would disagree with that. I mean, they spend three books bringing everyone around and bringing them on side. Like, the elves are convinced, but they're weak, they're failing, and they're, like, way out of... They're over there. Do they spend? Yeah. Do they spend three books bringing people around? I mean, as I understand, it, they spend three books gathering their war effort. But right. I mean, in the first book, they in the first book they're simply moving the ring and facing off with Isengard. In the second book, they deal with Isengard and bring Rohan back to a sort of war economy. 
Right. And by the time that's yeah. happening, Gondor is already at yeah. active war but by the time the, the, the Council of Elrond in the first book, they like, boom, this is it. This is the threat. This is the mission. Right, but they have no power over the people who actually have armies. They have to go to Rohan, where the king is convinced actively by Wormtongue that, you know, uh, Saruman is his ally and that Sauron isn't a threat and that the Rohirrim are. that uh, Gondor is going to abandon him to his fate. So they have to bring Theoden around uh, and then fight and then turn them around and head towards Gondor. And then when they get to Gondor, Denethor is insane and has already convinced himself that he's going to lose. Um, and so then they have to rescue Gondor essentially from its own internal divisions uh, and turn them around. And then, uh, and by the way, the... Uh, the southern part of Gondor is away fighting the Corsairs. Uh, so Aragorn has to go over there and use a ghost army to magically save them and then bring their forces up. You know, so it's the long game that uh, Gandalf essentially is playing is gathering these forces, some of whom aren't even convinced that there's a problem, having them show up at just the nick of time in order to fool Sauron into thinking that they're a threat to distract him from uh, the, the hobbits. <laughs> Chris, did I hear you try to interject? Oh, uh, I was just kind of caught up in the in what was going on there. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I was I was kind of just making some sort of a flippant statement that uh, I, I think that if uh, you dropped Sauron into the middle of the Seven Kingdoms, he absolutely would have emerged as king because he is such a good manipulator <laughs> and would have been yeah. completely successful in his efforts. I mean, he just had the misfortune of being dropped into Middle Earth instead, where the different parties, as you guys said, could actually be convinced to come around and work for the common good, whereas uh, many of the power players in the Seven Kingdoms can literally see the desiccated, mummified claw grasping at their throat and still be like, hey, I can use this to my advantage. This is going to work out fine. <laughs> That's a fair point. I would like to raise an objection to our blatant derogatory terms towards mummies. Jesus. <laughs> In fact, I'm saying it. I'm on this, I'm now on the side of the, of the Night King. I, I would like to apologize in advance to the differently lifed uh, I did. I meant no offense. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, metaphysically challenged. I think is the gives uh, the ghosts an honored place in his army. So you know, <laughs> there you go. And, and of course, this is not. Uh, this is less of a Jon Snow Aragorn thing. Of course, we've already we've drifted from that quite a lot in this episode. But that's fine. It's been. It's Ooh. a great. It's, it's a great discussion. Um, but the uh, I, I, this this is raises the point that. Uh, while the Seven Kingdoms squabble over the Iron Throne is very much an al uh, a comparison to the One Ring itself. They're so distracted by this thing that gives them power that they're completely ignorant to the obvious doom <laughs> it presents. So um, I think that's pretty cool. And I think that's also potentially how song of ice and fire game of thrones will end which is that there won't necessarily be an iron throne just like the one ring was destroyed i think the iron throne may also be destroyed Ooh, oh man hot take we'll hot see. take <laughs> i'm um, so rooting for well Denny. yeah so unless anyone has anything else to add well and then on that i i think we're we're gonna wrap up because you know you you said we did drift a bit 
um, but in a good way from the two main protagonists. And yeah. you can't understand these individuals without understanding the broader world around them. So having discussed it, we've we've talked it over, a lot of good points have been made. It's decision time. So going down the list, <laughs> you're going to need to tell me, Aragorn or Jon Snow, who do you think is greater? I'll start with Claude. I side with Bilbo. <laughs> I just, I just want to get back and have my third breakfast. Yes. But bacon is better than all of this. All right, well, okay. So, what? How are we thinking about this? Are are we thinking about this in terms of who we would like to lead us, or who we identify with more, or who would be a better? Um, hero in the circumstances because it seems like we're dealing with two different perspectives the idealized hero uh or the more realistic possibly the right person at the right time depending on the circumstances if we're talking about an outlook i would much I'm much more sympathetic towards the circumstantial, the the one that that is much more tentative or conditional. If we're talking about who I'd like to be um, in charge of things to make sure things are running effectively. I would much rather go with the mythological because from the perspective of myth, it all works out. Uh, but in terms of uh, how the world actually functions and the perspective that I have and the perspective that I have on heroism and I guess effective rule, I think I, I would have to come down on the side of Jon Snow not necessarily in terms of who I would want to be my captain, but in terms of what's most likely to be my captain. Very good. One for Jon Snow. Well yeah. Put. Dominic. Hmm. Following on from that, I I guess I would say one of the well, one of the big things that hamstrings any firm conclusion is that we don't yet know what Jon Snow is going to do. That being said, I I see Jon Snow perhaps as representing a more positive direction for his world than necessarily Aragorn might have for his. If only in the sense that Aragorn basically created a happy ever after. Whereas I think Jon Snow might create a more interesting and well-governed realm that being said i'm always if we're talking game of thrones i'm still team daenerys but i think john snow's <laughs> i think john snow's potential is greater than aragorn's two for john snow I, I didn't see it going this way wow um okay um chris oh man well i'm glad i at least get to go third because if i had to be the first two that, that's a lot of pressure um <clears throat> 
So what you're saying is I'm you, the hero. You're the hero we need right now. Yes. I'm not the hero or, you or want. Or deserve. But I'm the hero you deserve. Uh, okay, gosh. Um, I, I went into this thinking it was going to be um, Aragorn all the way because he is just, you know, the Arthurian embodiment of heroism. Um, virtually, literally. And I, I, you know, something on some something something you know nothing. There's some sort of a joke there, but anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's been a it's been an incredibly interesting conversation, and um, I'm, I'm I'm very torn. Um, but I guess I got to side with the the first two panelists in a way of of John embodies kind of the more modern uh 21st century understanding of the nature of power the nature of responsibility and being able to react to changing and unpredictable circumstances and it's not a it's not as though i think that uh he's a better leader or person or whatever than aragorn but he does seem to be more in the realm of the mortal and the real and the realistic which is of course exactly what he was created to be but I suppose that 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 is my answer. I, I would also vote Jon Snow. Jon Snow making a clean sweep. Aziz. Well, I, I, I will, of course, go with Jon Snow um, to no one's surprise, but I'll try to offer some justification beyond the, um, you know, the bias, <laughs> the implicit bias of, of what I do here. Uh, so I'd say that, yeah, I'd say that Jon Snow is, if we're talking about just, you know, that when people think of verses, they might think of them literally fighting each other. Uh, if it's a oh, yeah. head-to-head fight, I think Aragorn. <laughs> that. But as far oh, as character, should have done that. Yeah. Why didn't we? Gotta admit, to do that? yeah, Aragorn's just 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 a monster. Dude, Viggo Mortensen, <laughs> yeah, but who's <laughs> boss? Yeah, and but I mean, Jon Snow might just get back up again <laughs> after dying, but you know. <laughs> well, like, okay. Still. Viggo Mortensen would spend the next decade figuring out how to fight in that style, and um, Kit Harrington would kind of just emote. Brood. So it, yeah. It's no contest. Smolder. A moot. So uh, he, but I think that he is. Yeah, I do think that he is more of a role model. I don't think that he's. He's certainly he's very flawed in a lot of ways. He's a he's a poor communicator. Um, I think he's more of a lead. He's a lead by example guy in a lot of ways, uh, more so than anything. But I think that one of the themes that in in covering Game of Thrones, The Song of Ice and Fire, all these years, one of the things we've, that we've noticed is, that's very different from the way everyone else, as far as main characters in Game of Thrones, uh, associate with power, is that Jon Snow is one of the is, is one of the very few who's kind of earned it. He went seeking responsibility and got power, whereas almost everybody else has been seeking power. And in Daenerys' case, she sought power and is finding responsibility, and she's handling it. She's realizing that, but it, but she's coming to it from a much different place. So I, I really appreciate that about Jon Snow as a character that, and that kind of is a contrast to Aragorn, whereas Aragorn, he had his reasons for not wanting to become, to face his destiny, you know, to put it simply. But he did, in a sense run from responsibility for a while he came around to it for sure but Jon Snow kind of went headlong into it right away as a young boy he's like I want to I want to serve the realm you know that's 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 what I'm going to do I thought I'm going to prove myself that's how I'm going to 
fit in. That's what I'm, that's my place in this world. And it's hard not to like that, hard not to appreciate that and say, hey, you know, good job, kid. That's, that's, a, that's the right attitude. And then from there, he just gets more and more responsibility and he takes it on. He never, he, 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 he hates it. He hates having the responsibility, yeah. but he does not shirk it one bit. So um, I, think that's, I think that's good. All right. Ben, would you like to cast your mathematically meaningless book? <laughs> um, I'd like to vote for Faramir. <laughs> can I change mine? Okay. Uh, can no. I go with Faramir, too? <laughs> Faramir's great. No one ever talks Uh-oh. about Faramir. Okay, but... Um, and completely misrepresented in the movies. But anyway... Um, Absolutely. He probably has more in common with Jon Snow than Aragorn in a lot of ways, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so... Yeah, I'm going to vote for Aragorn. Um... And I, I too will attempt to explain myself rather than just voting it out of necessity. But um, I would say that we've spent, you know, several decades with postmodernism uh, trying to show the reality uh, of things. Reality sucks. Um, and that's why we read fantasy. Um, <laughs> whenever in this modern world with social media and everything where we, we get news instantaneously, when we find out that our leaders are actually human, we decide we hate them. So Aragorn is a leader who does a very good job of being human, but making sure that no one knows. <laughs> and that's, that's Aragorn. He's, he's the leader we need. Um, and he's the leader. He's able to convince us that we're the leader we want. And that's uh, why he's a better leader, ultimately. So, all right. And I, I too, uh, am going to cast my vote for Aragorn. Uh, and very similarly to Ben, um, <clears throat> since I, I, my first election that I voted in was in two thousand, and <laughs> since two thousand, I I read uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy every uh presidential election year god that must and be depressing i don't think it's a that's a strange tradition <laughs> well i don't know i mean it, it helps well well dominic if you had to sit through 2016 <laughs> you'd want your brain i did to be and i couldn't else. do anything about it <laughs> it's like, it's like, i just uh, like you're reading up on the I, I, I read the... Uh, yeah anyway <laughs> but um but but exactly like like ben said like there's this fantasy angle like i need to believe right now that all this diminishing is somehow going to be reversed and the dark lord is going to be banished so yeah i'm team aragorn i can dig it with that in mind (laughs) i want to change my vote to vladimir putin (laughs) i heard he's a really tremendous guy just you know the best just give him a shot okay just give him a shot dominic dominic are you a bot (laughs) Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. That's an offensive question. I have skin. Hey, hey, Ar- Arnold Side Schwarzenegger, way. the T eight hundred, you know, would beg to differ. Well, I guess what I guess actually one thing I do want to say is that Aragorn is probably a more inspirational figure. Yeah, yeah. That that the idealist in all of us would follow Aragorn. And perhaps that's what uh, leadership is to to a degree, um, to to cultivate or develop in some capacity that ideal image of yourself, that ideal projection of yourself that will motivate others um, to want to work with you in some capacity. Mm. And, and I think that 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 comes back to how how we're thinking about this. 
Um, we're trying to choose between the ideal and the real. And I, I think we're all struggling with with that choice. Um, <clears throat> in some ways, we can't do that. We need the ideal, but we also need the real. We need the parameters that tell us that someone is the chosen one, even though that individual is only chosen because he, she, or it inhabits that position at that given moment it's sort of like we're we're all sort of negotiating between these 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 stark binaries but what we're finding is neither neither one uh absolutely fits right Mm -hmm. um perhaps there is no definitive conclusion here would would anyone follow aragorn into battle Yeah, I guess we probably would. Would any one of us unhesitatingly follow Jon Snow? Probably not, but it might be the right thing to do. So it's sort of... We're back to... I have have a possible solution, okay? (laughs) We we elect Aragorn to Emperor, you know, like God King, and we have Jon as the the Prime Minister, I think, you know... <laughs> Second. So, so our Winner. compromise is to err on the side of compromise. Yes. But the, the, yeah, it's it, it's sort of like to Aragorn on the side of. <laughs> oh, uh. we can't even compare like the length of their names. It's still seven letters. <laughs> Darn, that was going to be the tiebreaker. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, oh, dang it. Well, folks, I want to thank everybody for joining me today. This was a lot of fun, and we at least got to talk about stuff that we loved, even if it wasn't the most important thing in the world. So there's that. (laughs) So, again, I want to thank uh, Aziz, Ben, Chris, Dominic, and and Claude. Uh, Thank you all for helping me sort out who was greater. I am so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, you're good. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.